This is the Edisto TV podcast, connecting the Blackwater region. And welcome to another episode of the Edisto TV podcast. I'm Hugo. And I'm Tom. And we are here this week with episode 27 coming up. Part two of the interview we had with Dana Beach that we started in the previous episode. Dana is the founder, executive director of the Coastal Conservation League, and we'll be deep uh, into some of the water policy issues that we've been talking about here with Dana uh, once we get to that interview. Also coming up, we just spoke on the phone with Amy Armstrong of Skelp. Uh, about the lawsuit over the ag registration provisions of the surface water law. They had the hearing uh, down in Charleston on the 15th. And so we talked to Amy about the outcome of uh, the hearing on motions down there and what happens next. Um, Tom, what's up online this week? Well, we had a few things out there that got some attention. Uh, One, uh, of course, the one we just posted, I'm sure is going to get some activity regarding the uh, an article about the lawsuit, and uh, we don't need to talk about that much more. We'll hear from Amy in a few minutes. Um, another one was big was uh, the South Carolina S- State Port Authority has put in $5 million for conservation as part of the agreement um, between, uh, I guess they want to deepen the harbor. Is that what's going yeah, on? Yeah, they, they, they have an application pending, I think, before the Corps of Engineers where they want to do the harbor deepening project. And there had been some opposition to this proposition on the part of the uh, conservation community. And uh, the article that you've linked there, I think, uh, makes the point that uh, this is a case where instead of just fighting to no good end, the conservation community and, in this case, the folks from the port, sat down together and found a resolution to their issues that it seems like everybody can live with. That sounds like a good model for getting things done. What do you think, Hugo? I've uh, always been a big fan of talking to your neighbors (laughs) about issues. You don't think we should just go ahead and uh, have a big fight? (laughs) Well, I I, I don't think so, but I don't know if uh, on the waterfront we're going to be able to see what I did there on the waterfront. Um, I don't think we're going to be able to avoid uh, having to fight because – the other side just doesn't want to sit down and talk. Yeah, that's a shame. Um, but uh, also, I thought of note in that article, um, Dana Beach, who we'll be hearing from uh, the rest of our interview with him, um, you know, he had some things to say. Uh, land conservation should be an ongoing agenda item for business community. Um, and then specifically about the harbor, the harbor deepening project has broad and long-term implications for South Carolina's economic or economy and environment. Our goal has been to support the positive aspects of the project while preventing the degradation of two of South Carolina's greatest assets, Charleston Harbor and the Cooper River. So perhaps the single most important step we can take to secure their health is to protect the watershed of the Cooper River. So uh, that's Dana Beach looking out for uh, the, the waters down there and, and, and working with government and, you know, business because I mean, we all want we want the port to be good, and I guess if you got to deepen it, you got to deepen it. But man, I'm glad they're they're uh, demonstrating support for the river and and the, the environment around it. Yeah, and it it does come to mind that this is another example of one of these situations where you have to balance the value of economic development versus the impact of that development on the environment and you know the lives of all the people who are impacted by it. So so the surface water thing is certainly not unique in, in having that dynamic in it. Yeah, and I just realized I really, I I didn't give the governor any credit here. Okay. But, but, but she was featured in the article. 
She is, and, yes. And um, I mean, I guess she's supporting uh, doing some. She she considers this a good marriage of conservation groups and business. Yes, and and I mean, the governor is on record and has been entirely consistent in supporting economic development um, in a very strong fashion. And, yeah. and I think we all agree that we need a strong economy in the state. Yeah. Um, I just, I wish that she was more engaged with us on the surface water issue. Uh, it seems like she can't get far enough away from these questions. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so it, it almost, I, when I saw the picture of her standing in front of the woods, you know, and everything, it, it I, I kind of was hearing her running as the conservation president in a few years. Well, and I mean, she's from Bamberg right on the Edisto river. She, she ought to be, you know, as interested as any of us who are from along the Edisto and from along South Carolina's rivers in in maintaining those resources in as healthy a manner as we can. So hopefully at some point she will take a stance on these issues and uh, maybe come to our aid in helping to resolve the issues that exist. Um, one other item that you, we've got linked there on the Edisto Concerns Facebook page is this article about Clemson putting $8.7 million into research on how nursery operations use water. Uh, this, of course, has some implications on the surface water front. And uh, you might remember that when we were talking with Vince Furtick a while back, he is a nurseryman, and, of course, he is very interested in this issue. Yeah, we had a great visit this morning. We'll uh, got some good video taped out there talking to Vince and and uh um so yeah, I'm I look forward to hearing more from Vince in the near future. All right, thanks. Um all right, we're going to take a quick break now and then we're going to come back and we're going to have the piece of tape we just made with Amy Armstrong about the lawsuit, and then we'll jump over to the second part of the interview with Dana Beach. So stick around with the Edisto TV podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. This is Tom from the Edisto TV podcast, and I just want to put in a word for Tyler Brothers. They've been serving the Blackwater region for over 100 years. They have a lawn and garden center with plenty of steel and husky chainsaws, weed trimmers, blowers, plenty of Husqvarna mowers and if you've got a lot of grass to cut check out those Husqvarna zero tone mowers they have three or four different models to choose from check them out at tylerbrothers.net or if you're on Facebook you definitely want to follow them and get the latest deals from them you can find them at facebook.com slash tylerbros or search for Tyler Brothers and you'll find Tyler Brothers for Carhartt clothing they are the place guns and ammo your carhartt work clothes they've got camo from carhartt and drake and many more work boots from georgia boot rocky red wing justin wolverine and many more they are the place for your safety shoes your snake boots your camo whatever else you need when you are out in the swamp tyler brothers since 1904 it's the place for you to be on a saturday afternoon they're open eight to six six days a week closed on sunday stay away from the superstores and visit tyler brothers in wagner Okay, we are back now on the Edisto TV podcast. And Tom, uh, just as preface to our little conversation with Amy Armstrong here, um, we, the group of us, did go down and sit in the court as the judge looked at these motions in the lawsuit. And basically, he denied the motion to dismiss on the part of uh, DHEC, and he 
uh, also did not agree to issue a preliminary injunction, which is what Amy's motion was asking for. So uh, I guess a win and a tie maybe for the I like that. Yep. The, the, the lawsuit there. So um, let's go right to Amy and get her reaction to what happened in court yesterday. Could you maybe just give us a brief summary of what transpired in, in uh, the courthouse yesterday and what your thoughts are? Sure. Um, so the court heard uh, two, two motions. One was DHEC's motion to dismiss our case. And what DHEC did was um, argued that the, the case altogether should just be thrown out. And they listed a number of um, grounds for dismissal. And the majority of the argument yesterday, you know, y'all were there. We, the court only heard from us for about 10 or 15 minutes. And the majority of the time the court um, spent hearing DHEC and, and beating up on DHEC a little bit for uh, and dis- disagreeing basically with their arguments about whether um, venue was proper, about whether the plaintiffs had standing and and standing is basically you you have to show that you suffered an injury that's caused by the defendant and can be redressed by the court. Um, The judge rejected the notion that there wasn't standing or venue or any of the other grounds that DHEC asserted would give the judge a basis, a legal basis for throwing the case out. In other words, just not hearing it at all. So that that's good because defeating that motion means that the case is alive. It's still going forward. The judge still you know, has jurisdiction, and he indicated that he um, wanted to have it. You know, he wanted to hear the case on the merits, and he wants to um, hear learn more about the case. So I think that that was uh, that obviously was very good for us. The other other motion that was heard was our motion for an injunction, uh, asking the court to prohibit DHEC from issuing any more registrations until he makes a final ruling on whether the act is constitutional or not. You know, I think that the judge he, in denying in denying our motion for an injunction didn't didn't quite um, fully grasp the legal basis for our case and the reason I say that is because he said well you know y'all were there you heard what he, he did he heard arguments for me for about 30 seconds, if that. Um, I got about a sentence out on why I thought we should have an injunction, and he immediately said, well, I think that that there's, you know, there's an adequate remedy, um, and so I'm not going to grant the injunction. And he clearly didn't want to hear anymore, and it was obvious to me he had made up his mind before we even strolled into that courtroom what he was going to do. Um, and I, and when I, why I say I don't, I don't think he un- understands fully our case is because the remedy that we're asking for is the law to be down as unconstitutional. Um, and an and adequate remedy implies that um, if he if he agrees with us that we can get money damage or we can get compensation. So, you know, a takings claim, a takings, if there is a taking by the government of private property um, for public use, then you compensate the owner. And that's, you know, the, the theory of eminent domain derives from that idea of taking private property for public use. But our, our argument really is that it's taking private property and for private use. In other words, you're taking the private property rights of riparian owners and giving them to private agricultural users, and in doing so, you're giving those agricultural users far superior rights than anybody else in the state has. 
superior to municipalities, industry, um, individuals, anybody. These agricultural users just have you know, absolute rights, that carte, carte blanche rights to remove as much um, water as they want without any limitation other than the amount and the registration itself. So we, we don't agree that there's an adequate remedy that um, and that an injunction really should have been issued, and uh, but that doesn't. I guess the bigger problem is really that there have been a bunch of 155 registrations that have already been grandfathered in, and since the act was passed, there have been five new registrations that have been issued. So since 2010, there have been five. So I don't know that um, it's hard to predict how many are going to be coming down the lines before there are, there's a, there are merits hearing. Certainly, what's on the ground right now is, is a lot more harm has resulted just as a result of the registrations that were grandfathered in. Um, I mean, many much a much larger quantity has already been appropriated to agricultural users through this grandfathering provision than has been appropriated just through the, these five registrations. So, you know, there's some argument that a lot of the damage has already, you know, there is an argument, and we believe that the damage has already occurred just by virtue of passage of the act. So there's Amy Armstrong talking about what happened in Judge Dennis's court on the motions in the lawsuit against DHEC over the agricultural registration aspects of the surface water law. We asked Amy where she thinks this case is going to go next, and uh, definitely going forward, the motion to dismiss was denied, and therefore the case is ongoing. Uh, They do not yet have a court date or necessarily know exactly what the next step is going to be. They are making, I understand, a plan, and Amy has agreed to be in touch with us as soon as they have something to announce on that front. Yep, nothing nothing in the near future is what I'm hearing. Yeah, I think that it will take a while to develop, but it will be very interesting to see where that goes now that the case remains ongoing. Um, so there's Amy, and now let's move on to part two of our interview with Dana Beach of the Coastal Conservation League. Uh, We're continuing our conversation with Dana here, digging deeper into a detailed discussion of his stance on the issues that need to be addressed in the existing surface water law. And, you know, even if you're not a huge water policy wonk, and I mean, some people aren't, hard to understand, but it is an interesting chance to look at the issue through the lens of Dana Beach's decades of experience leading the Coastal Conservation League. Uh, any thoughts before we jump into the continuation of our conversation with Dana, Tom? Well, just I took the liberty yesterday while we were in Charleston. I wandered around a bit on my own and uh, went over to the Grow Food Carolina uh, shed where they have kind of a place where farmers bring in their vegetables and they distribute to markets and so forth. So um, pretty neat operation going on down there. That's a uh, a combination of uh, the Coastal Conservation League as well as Department of Agriculture and I think other groups as well. And my understanding is that there are like 72 farmers, I think, at this point involved in the Grow Food Co-op down there. And uh, they do have, I think, one in the upstate that's getting started as well. So interesting nexus there between conservation and uh, agriculture. So here we go, part two of our interview with Dana Beach here on the Edisto TV podcast. Earlier, you were saying that, you know, the law is kind of a meat cleaver, Dana, and I I mean, I'd question if it's even got a sharp edge. I think it's more of a bludgeon at this point. But, I mean, even if we had a perfect law, 
I know that no such thing exists, but even if we had something to put forward that absolutely definitively solved all of the existing problems we see in the law, how do we fix the problems if Farm Bureau, and it's not just them, I'm sure there are other opponents to changing the Surface Withdrawal Act, the Surface Water Withdrawal Act, but if they won't even acknowledge that a problem exists, how do we ever get to the point in the dialogue where we're looking for a solution? Well, you know, I think it's like any 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 issue we've ever been involved with, whether it's transportation reform or you know land use planning. It, you you got people across the spectrum from people who agree that there's a problem and that there's a way to solve it, but you may not agree exactly on how to do it, or maybe you agree on ninety percent of how to do it. And then you've got people who just stake out the ends and polarize the issue and we at some point you just got to say we're not going to we can't accommodate those people we we have to move on and solve problems rather than posture and you know there are people I'd say you know I I like this what I am concerned about is when people say oh well you know there are people on both sides of the issue like that well sure there are but it just so happens that the people who have the influence uh, you know can if they're polarizing on one side they are more important than the ones who have to be polarizing on the other side if they are in the influence so I guess to, to get past that convoluted statement I would say you know we just need to figure out who the receptive people are and work with them and and solve the problem. Come up with something everybody can agree with. So uh, you know, to me, it comes down to money. I mean, it, it, at some level, you, you get two, money in two ways. One is that it costs more to to care more. I mean, that there are externalities associated with not caring, whether that's pumping pollution into the air or water or withdrawing water. You know, if you just take what's there, it costs less than if you if you uh, design a system that really is more respectful of the resource. So that's that's something that the farmers are, are gonna have to do. They're gonna have to agree that they need to they need to do that and care care enough to put the money into it. And you know, the part of the problem not to get too off the reservation on this subject, but is food frankly ought to cost more than it does. The, what we're eating not only is the food, but we're eating all the externalities of cheap food production. You know, not being careful about water withdrawals, not being careful about chemical applications and the residues that, you know, persist. But the other money is the simpler and cheaper money, but it sometimes is the money that's kind of the biggest stumbling block. And that is just having the state, having an agency willing to really jump in there and say, these are the things we need. We need to have these gauges. We need to have regular uh, real-time reporting of withdrawals. That's the other thing. I mean, we, we one is we need how much water is in the river, and then we also need to be able to report real-time how much is being withdrawn from it. And then we figure out, okay, what makes sense in terms of, of a proper level and regime of withdrawal. And when is it when is it, it it's time to go to a contingency plan? So I was uh you kind of touched on what I was going to ask last time which was how do we 
what is our, uh, how do we talk to farmers? We, we're trying to um, educate farmers on what's going on here. And because we, we believe there's probably some daylight between Farm Bureau's stance and the average farmer in South Carolina's stance on protecting the river and on this law. And so how do we talk to farmers to get them to understand the, that we're not just trying to put new restrictions on them, add more red tape. You know, we, we want to protect the rivers and we think that farmers could, can play a part in that. Well, I, we all know farmers. I mean, we all know specific farmers and, and I, some of the people I admire as much as anybody in South Carolina are some of the farmers I know and spent for decades. I know a number of them up in the TV and the, wonderful people and actually the farmer those farmers helped us were our partners and allies in the in the battle against corporate hog operations so there is no farm opinion or farm community there are a lot of different farmers and they have a lot of different opinions just like there's no conservation community there are a bunch of conservationists and they come in with different points of view and different opinions. Um, and it's just important to figure, to, to acknowledge that. And let's say, let's just figure out where the, where is the point, where's the point of agreement that we can come to. And and the other thing, of course, the Farm Bureau will say is the farmers are you know, closest to the land. They're the ones who depend on the land. And they say, therefore, farmers are going to be good environmentalists. Well, that isn't necessarily true. Um, but, uh, some of them are. So that's so that's the thing. I think what I would do would be to put a. I mean, what we should all do is is and y'all have really done some of that is is put a coalition of people, residents, citizens, and farmers together to say these are the reasonable steps that we think need to be taken. And if there's money needed to to do these things, which there will be, then there needs to be support for that money. If PHEC needs more money to to implement these state of the art uh, systems, which they do, uh, then we need to make sure that it's in the budget. I, I was struck before by your comments about the 90-10 rule, about how 90% of funding comes from 10% of people. And it made me wonder, are the other 90% of the people, though, important? Because if they weren't there supporting whatever the issue is, then there's nothing motivating the 10% who do give to give? Yeah, I and mean, we have this conversation, by the way, at the league a lot. Um, we we are, are we have a membership of about well, depending on how you count it, maybe sixteen, seventeen hundred families, and those families are people, maybe three or four thousand people. Uh, but about ten percent of those people contribute almost ninety percent of our income. But if we didn't have the other 90% to engage politically, to be, you know, a part of the coalition of folks who really believe in the environment and believe in conservation of the coast, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do very well. I mean, we are ultimately a, we are a, a group of citizen activists, basically. We're civic organizers in some sense. And a lot of the people we work with aren't members of the Conservation League. We work with in communities and neighborhoods where we'd like to have them all as members, but they aren't. Most of them, in many instances, aren't members. 
Um, so anyway, to, to, we need a broad base of public support and engagement for these issues. And when we don't have that, and this is how, to sort of digress for a second on South Carolina, I'm a South Carolinian, so I can say this. This state is one of the least democratic with a small D states in America because we have for 300 years been gotten used to doing what people tell us to do. And we, we have these don't tread on me flags, which really are a complete misrepresentation of South Carolina, what some historians have called culture of conformity. We are afraid to break out of the, out of the herd and say, you know, this doesn't make sense. We shouldn't be doing this. And so we listen to the leaders, the leaders, whether it's whoever, whether it's Ben Tillman or some good leaders, I mean, or Fritz Hollins or Stan Thurman, whoever it is, we are very much cowed by and impressed by and, and frankly silenced by the leadership. And that is absolutely the case in the legislature. In the legislature, there are basically four people who control that whole operation. Always have been. You know, Marion Gressett, uh, you know, um, Edgar Brown, Saul Block, back to you know, Tillman, back to earlier days. So, and form and and formerly Speaker Harrell and Senator Leatherman. I mean, so I'm I'm digre- I said I was going to digress, but basically, South Carolinians have to learn to be more active citizens. That's what we need to learn how to do. We need to not just turn our brains off and our mouths off and let people make decisions for us. And the, because the problem is that means the lobbyists are the only ones who are up there in the conversation, whether it's the Farm Bureau or our lobbyists or anybody. It, it is, that's why Edisto Concerns and Friends of the Edisto and the work y'all are doing is not only important, it is absolutely non-negotiably essential if we're going to be successful. You know, we if we, the lobby crowd, you know, our lobbyists work, we're always working on the margins. We're never working for the kind of fundamental improvements that citizens and a citizen movement can get. And I would say the reason that there was, to the extent there was a beneficial, certainly a more beneficial outcome in the whole law reform debate, it's because of the, it wasn't because of the conservation league, it wasn't because of Conservation Voters, the Wildlife Federation, it was because of the citizens, the Friends of the River, Edisto Concern, and the individuals who were out there taking pictures of themselves with the water up to their ankles in the Edisto. That's the, that's the power of democracy and citizenship at its best. Talk about how the commons, in this case surface water, are converted to private ends and profits. We've got this guy, J.J. Jowers, who, who is also concerned about what's happened on the Edisto, and he once asked us why what we're doing with surface water is any different from him just deciding to take a logging truck down to the Aiken State Park and pull out logs for profit. Do you have any thoughts on how we can preserve the resource for all stakeholders and still make highest and best use of what's safely available in the resource for things like farming? Well, you know, that is absolutely a key question. Uh, The water, waters of the state are literally waters of the state and waters 
owned by the state. There's also a a common law construct called riparian right that 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 does confer on riparian landowners the right to use the river. And so the at some level this whole common laws of the of the commons and also of riparian rights are this kind of balanced precariously and ideally balanced uh in a way that that doesn't um harm the public's interest but still allows you know riparian owners the reasonable use of of rivers and river edges the 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 problem comes when one of when the balance is up, is is upset one or the other side is too heavily favored and in our case it's often the public interest that's that that's you know at a at a deficit um the um you know i guess the race, recent supreme court ruling is important uh for Captain Sam Spit, because Justice Hearn went on, goes on at, at great length, and it's worth reading about the importance of the public trust, about the about the primary dominant importance of the public trust, and the burden being on the permit permittee to to demonstrate that there is a public interest in. The use of the river, in this case, building a seawall on the Kiowa River, uh, for that purpose, and they didn't. They didn't do that in the case of the applicant. The Supreme Court overturned their permit. So the 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 balance really tilts in favor of the public interest. There's got to be a a demonstration that either the public interest isn't harmed, maybe both, and that there's some beneficial value to the public's um to the public from the use of in this case the Edisto for water for irrigation. And there is. I mean we've we've got a we all acknowledge farmers need to draw water from the river and from groundwater. But uh they need to do it in a way that's sustainable, you know, over time. It doesn't harm the next generation. It doesn't harm neighbors, doesn't harm the the aquatic flora and fauna. You know that's the balancing act, and and South Carolina's been too far on the side of well, let them take what they want. And I said at a water conference that to me it's crazy not to attach a fee to the use of of a resource. I mean it is the consumption of a resource. You know eventually the water you could argue gets back somehow into the water cycle, but some of it goes, I guess, into potatoes which people eat. But uh, but there really ought to be some fee that that acknowledges the public value of the public asset value of water. And a number of states do charge fees for water withdrawals. There's one that one benefit to that is that water uh, by having a price on it, it acknowledges the um, that it isn't uh, you know abundant and infinite in its uh, you know, in its uh, supply, and that there needs to be some rationing of it. Um, and the other is, it, it's you know, it's something that could we could be used to to fund the kinds of things that we've been talking about, the technological investment that needs to be made to properly manage water withdrawals. So, 
I think it's nuts that we give it away. I think anybody who gives it half a thought should think it's nuts. You know, as as uh, you know, as y'all said, just the same way that giving away. You can't go cut longleaf pine trees down in the Francis Marion National Forest and take them out. If you if you pay for them, you can. But to a certain point, you have to leave enough for the environment. So anyway, I'm um, I'm a big fan of having fees. Um, I think we we when we fight and argue about how much we don't have enough money to do these things, this could generate money, and it also, at some level, is a an affirmation that we are at fundamentally a society that is market-based and transactional, which we are. We're not a, you know, central planning socialist society where we say, you can have that, you can have that, you can have that. We basically agree that price signals are important, that that it, markets are important, and that there are incentives uh, that ought to be in place to encourage conservation and appropriate and beneficial use. Earlier, you uh, mentioned the sort of riparian rights aspect of the surface water issue, and that's exactly where the Skelp lawsuit over the Surface Water Withdrawal Act is going. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with that. We talked to Amy Armstrong about it in the episode of the uh, podcast that's up at the moment, and they essentially are going to court saying that the agricultural res, uh, registration process gives agricultural registries, if that's a word, you know, special and additional rights that riparian owners don't have. Um, can you talk about your thoughts on that suit, if it has any merit, what kind of chances of success you see for it? Because if it were to succeed, that's a game changer, right? Because then we're not asking for the law to be changed. The law will have to be changed, correct? Well, I think, it, yes, it will have to be changed. And really the question we've all asked and everyone's asked this question is, is but, but is it, does it have to be changed for the good? Is there some fix that can be done that will uh, get us around this permanent allocation of resource, of, of common resource problem? And I'm concerned, I have been concerned that the, um, that it, it's uh, again speaking of blunt instruments that it's a i think it's a i think it is a very important critically important point and i'm delighted that they brought it up i think it's critical that we that we talk about the fact that simply allocating a resource to somebody in perpetuity is 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 ridiculous i mean it is ridiculous giving it to them um one of the arguments just by the way against Putting a price on water, as I've heard, has been well. If we do that, then it, it seems to indicate that they, they they own it and can sell it. Well, I would argue there are we're already in that situation. And if you got a registration, you could sell it, and that's not good. So if we're going to create a essentially a commodity, we should at least make sure that the price that's being charged for it is is a price that reflects the true value of it. But but to the point about the lawsuit, I think it's been good to highlight the in this case the most absurd part of the law. But also I am the reason we wanted to organize a group of folks to talk about changes to it with the ag community and the conservation community is that 
I can see a dozen ways that the lawsuit could be resolved. We'd be no better off. That's what concerns me. I think it's a good opportunity to have a conversation and come up with something that, you know, is really a, a, a net improvement. Right. You know, Thank I you mean, I give you one example. Sir. I mean, I, one example is if there's been discussion, well, you know, if we limit the registration instead of having it perpetual to 30 years, then, you know, probably be renewable, then then that would be one outcome of the lawsuit and the change of the law. Well, that doesn't, to me, that that is absolutely of no value. I see not one single iota of value for the for the rivers, for ecology, or for anything by limiting the registration to 30 years and having it renewable. I don't see that changes one single thing. Um, so, and I promise you that if you ask the fish, they wouldn't think it made any difference either. So, I, that's my concern. That it that it, it we end up with some change like that. That's a stupid change, and yet it it it, it resolves the constitutional problem that they've raised. So there's Dana Beach with the Coastal Conservation League, and we sure appreciate Dana taking the time to have such a long, in-depth conversation with us about these issues. Uh, like you always say, Tom, it, it, it's always so interesting to to learn more from the perspectives of these folks who really dedicate their lives to these issues. Yep, he's done a great job, and uh, I, I honestly didn't know who he was a year ago, and so uh, it's interesting to see these guys that are that are working in the trenches every day try to make the world a better place. Yep, and I've mentioned it before. I'll mention it one more time. Dana's book on DeVoe, uh, if you're interested in getting a copy of that, you can go to the Coastal Conservation League's website. And there's a link there. Tom might even be putting that link into the show notes. Yep, it'll be there. And uh, if you're looking for a beautiful coffee table book that uh, also supports some worthy causes, you might want to take a look there and, and see what you think of that. As we go about talking about these issues with folks, the thing that we hear probably the most is, well, what can I do? And the answer is what you can do is get involved, get engaged, Talk to your legislators. If you have the chance to come out to these things and you are interested, come out and, you know, just take a part in helping to determine what's going to happen on, on these very important issues. And with that, I think we're done with another episode of the Edisto TV podcast. Anything to add, Tom? Good day. All right, everybody. We appreciate your listening. And that's it for episode 27 of the Edisto TV podcast. This is the Edisto TV podcast, produced by Edisto TV, connecting the Blackwater region.